This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Jennifer Natalia Fink about the new book, All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship a provocation to reclaim our disability lineage in order to profoundly reimagine the possibilities for our relationships to disability, kinship, and care work. All Our Families challenges us to re-lineate disability with the family as a means of repair towards a more inclusive and flexible structure of care and community. Well, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Galena. I'm really excited to be here. All right. So can you tell us what do you do? Um, So I am a professor of English at Georgetown University, and I'm also the director of the program in disability studies. And I recently published a book with Beacon Press called All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship. And how did you get interested in working in this field? Well, so growing up, I always knew from age seven that my aunt and uncle had given away, quote unquote, a child at birth who had Down syndrome. And this kind of haunted me, um, the spectral presence of this cousin. And then um, 13 years ago, my daughter, who's now 15, Nadia, was diagnosed with non-speaking autism. And I experienced it as really traumatic, even though I'm queer, I'm progressive. and more recently, I started thinking about, well, why, was, why is disability still constituted as a trauma, um, even for those of us who are very progressive, with good intentions, all that? Um, why is there still so much stigma and shame about this very normal part of life? One in four people, according to the World Health Organization, have a disability, and we will all eventually be disabled if we live so long. So I started thinking about this family history and the lineage of disability in my family and how it had been repressed, stigmatized. Um, So it always feels like Groundhog Day, like it's brand new when a disability appears in a family. So I started thinking about that um, and researching the origins of this and also my own family history. And I found a whole other cousin with Down syndrome in the UK who had a very different trajectory, who was integrated in her family. Her family started a very progressive group home uh, for Jewish people with disabilities. It, It was a completely different narrative in many ways and then not in others. So I started thinking about kinship, family and how disability lineage, we can't really get rid of the stigma and shame and ableism around disability until we relineate, we connect with our own disability lineage, which is just a fancy way of saying um, the real message of the book, which is every family story is also a disability story if you choose to tell it. So every person, you, me, everybody has disabled people in their heritage, in their ancestry, in their lineage. Um, and even if you can't literally find them as I did, say you're adopted or you know, there are many contingencies, right? Um, just imagining that to be true changes the game, changes how we think about disability. So your latest book, it's All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship. So let's dive right in. 
And can we start with a very basic to make sure that everybody's on the same page? Could you describe what is a disability? You know, that's one of those things that's super simple in one way um, and super complex and contested in another. Um, Often we conflate impairment, right, with disability, but an impairment is an objective um, disorder or physical, mental, cognitive difference. Um, What makes something a disability are two things. One, whether or not it's constructed as such in a society, whether it's accommodated, whether it's seen as a mark of difference. For example, you can't see me, but um, I'm legally blind in one eye, but I have 20-20 vision with glasses, right? Do you consider that a disability? Probably not. My friend, Julia, is a wheelchair user. She can get anywhere I can get and do anything I can do with her wheelchair. Do you consider that a disability? I do, because our society has decided to sort that as a disability and my impairment as not a disability. We both have objective impairments, but one is understood as a disability and one isn't. Um, That's sometimes referred to as the social model of disability. What makes something disabling are the social conditions of whether it's accommodated or not and how it's socially understood. Now, more recently, folks have said, well, yes and no. Um, Their physical, emotional, lived experiences of disability, right? Of something, of feeling different, being different from how the norms constituted that even when you're accommodated, still make something a disability. So it's pretty complex what constitutes a disability and in motion. And in my ideal world, we wouldn't even need this term. We'd be able to integrate and value equally all body minds. So is it really dependent on the context uh, where the person finds themselves sort of on the social aspects of the community? Yes, yes. And and that's shifting and changing, right? Um, And people like me are, and disability justice activists are trying to to change it completely. So what is the prevailing mode of thought about uh, disability in our community? Well, I mean, I think it's changing. Um, I was just at a conference on a basically diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Which in the US since the racial reckoning of 2020, every organization from nations, states, corporations, universities have, have, we call it DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the big questions was, how do we think about disability um, as part of that? And that's something we've been really working on institutionally at Georgetown um, to often organizations and individuals are ready to think about um, race and gender and sexuality. And even if they you know, are well-meaning and want to include body, mind, difference and disability, they don't know how, right? So that is something that I think um, we're sort of suffering a sea change. We're beginning to um, really engage. What does it mean to center conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion on disability. Um, I think the movie Crip Camp moved the needle. There's a lot of discussion in the U.S. about mental disability, um, especially in the wake of COVID-19 and certainly at universities where so many students experienced uh, mental disability. So um, too often if you say disability, people think person in a wheelchair, right? Um, But we're also thinking about invisible disabilities, cognitive disabilities, intellectual disabilities. Um, And instead of stigmatizing and sorting disabled people into the non-human category, really valuing neurodiversity, valuing these disabilities, thinking about disability gain, um, particular experiences, ideas, creative acts that people make because of their disability, not in spite of. Hmm, that's very interesting. And I actually was on a panel in one of the events at our university uh, about the hidden uh, sort of invisible disabilities, which I was mm. advocating for, and uh, visible disabilities, the physical ones. And it was called Nothing Without Us About Us, 
or right. nothing about us without us. So what is the, yeah. why we should include the people who have, have disabilities and the way they, they sort of conceptualize their disabilities in this conversation? Yes, I think that's very central, and I'm excited that your university is having that nothing about us without us conversation that instead of disabled people being sort of the object of inquiry from medical discourse or psychological discourse or what have educational discourse um, being centered. Um, I was just reading about some really exciting work being done around autism where researchers pair with scientifically trained autistic people. So the research agenda, it's, it's not about being against research, it's about the research agenda changes, shifts um, when scientifically literate autistic people are at the center of it, for example. Um, so I think that's a, a huge shift going on in the sciences, in mental health work, where increasingly people with disabilities um, are at the center of the conversation rather than just being the objects. So in your book, you really want to revolutionize uh, sort of this field and how we think about disability. And could you explain what is kinship? Yeah. Um, so. I, I ended up, I didn't think I was going to write a book about kinship, right? I thought I was writing about lineage, where we come from, our family history, and how we suppress disability in our families. But that made me think about, well, what constitutes a family? Who decides? And I found um, a lot of disability justice activists talked in a way that reminded me, I'm old, but when I was, I was young once, incredibly, and when I was young, I was a queer activist, and there was a lot of discourse about, you know, the, the family of origin sucks, they're terrible, they're always inevitably homophobic, we couldn't even imagine, like, a queer family, for example, which is funny to me now, since I'm a parent and I'm queer, um, that was just like inconceivable. The family is patriarchal and homophobic and hideous and terrible. And families, they suck. The chosen family of your queer friends is this magical, perfect kinship system. It was completely elderless and childless. It was mm. young people and it wasn't sustainable. So I heard very similar rhetoric in the disability justice community when I started diving into this that, you know, the the family of origin is ableist and terrible. You know, it was this exact same rhetoric. And, you know, your, your chosen family, a term borrowed from the queer movement, is this great kinship system. <coughs> and the problem is that mutual aid, these um, families of choice, all of that are really designed for people who A, can advocate for themselves, um, who can take care of others if it's supposed to be mutual, and doesn't even imagine elders, infants, children, people who can't always advocate for themselves, right? So I think there, there was a real flaw in that thinking, and it inevitabilizes, perpetuates the idea that the family doesn't have, the biological family doesn't have disabled people in it. Of course it does. Of course it does. So I was trying to rethink this sort of false binary between the sucky, shitty family of origin and the magically perfect uh, chosen family. And I found that this thinking was already going on in a lived way um, in BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, particularly in Black communities and Indigenous communities, and that there were scholars from those communities thinking and writing about a kind of kinship that integrated family of origin and chosen family that didn't make this false distinction. Um, so I started thinking about how that could serve us both conceptually and practically uh, in the disability community as well. Um, there was so much talk about like on the ancestral plane, I long for my disabled ancestors, but I know I don't have any. It's like, yes, you do, you do. Um, so I wanted to kind of work against this binary and rethink this relationship between um, 
kinship, which really means this sort of extended family. Uh, I'm Jewish and I, you know, these aren't new ideas. This exists in Jewish culture. There's a term called mishpacha, which kind of means like that person you call aunt who's really your mom's best friend, you know, uh, it, it's your people. It's the people who aren't necessarily biological family, but uh, are, are um, beholden to you and you to them. It's beyond friendship. It's busy, right? Um, and thinking about how to make that sustainable and ways that I've, I'm kind of an introvert. I'm kind of a nerd. I'm not like a groupy group person. How I kind of found mishpacha, found kinship in the disability community, almost in spite of myself. Um, so I tell that story too, of finding a community with and for my daughter of other families um, and the kinds of knowledge, the kinds of intimacy that can occur in that, but not separating it from uh, our ancestry, our heritage, our, our blood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, it's in some ways speculative and I don't have all the answers about how this can work and, you know, but I really wanted to work against that binary because so often the, you know, the answer to the problem of the ableist or homophobic family is the, the family of choice, which just perpetuates the problem, I think. So that's sort of some of the thinking that uh, I ended up thinking about, you know, in some ways I'm saying there's a problem with being delineated, how, with dis- disabled people being de- delineated from the family line. So how do we fix that? And this idea about crip kinship, which I drawn from the disability justice movement, being lineated, connected, um, woven back into the fabric of family, um, and is sort of where I end up in the book. That's one really interesting thing you said that many people would. Uh say to their chosen family that oh in my family I don't have any disabled persons but most of us do isn't it but it just somehow it's siloed even to our our own relatives absolutely and you know one of the interesting things about this book it's been such a journey for me I thought I was going to write about I call him cousin xy because I'm a geneticist daughter so chromosomes are very important in my family all I knew about my cousin was that he was a boy so we had a Y chromosome, um, according to that understanding of gender, at least. And uh, then I find my other cousin, cousin Rona. Rona means joy in Hebrew. Um, you can't make this stuff up, right? Uh, and I thought that was going to be it. Those are that's my disability lineage. And then I realized that my mother and my my grandmother was deaf my, her, my entire life, and it shaped completely who she was for in very positive ways and very negative ways. Um, but we never talked about it in our family. And my mother is extremely hard of hearing. Um, and she wants me to tell everybody that she only became deaf in her 60s before then she was just hard of hearing. Um, and whereas my grandmother was very isolated by her Deafness, my mother is sort of the overcoming super crip narrative. There is, you know, she'll do anything to be included at at great cost to herself and has no community with other deaf people. Um, So I, who's like an expert in disability studies and wrote this book, didn't even think of including my mother and grandmother in my disability lineage. That's how deep my own ableism was. It was they're right across the table from me, right? And I didn't think of them as disabled. I didn't think of them as part of my disability lineage. Um, so as I came to the end of writing this book, I thought, oh my God, it, it's not just about reclaiming and finding those people cut out of the story of your family, like my cousins. It's about reclaiming and naming those that are in the family, but where the disability is unnamed, unspeakable, stigmatized, denied. Yeah, and that would open the whole world of um, sort of insight into, into their experiences, because it's so difficult to know exactly what they're going through. Yes, yes. And I really had to confront my own ableism, especially my grandmother has passed, but um 
in relationship to my mother, I used to, you know, be like, mom, don't talk so loud. You know, I was embarrassed. Um, I was terrified. I don't wear earplugs or anything like that. because I'm terrified of going deaf. Um, I really was sort of a, a, a coming to terms with this very intimate thing in my family that was absolutely unnamed and unspeakable. Um, even though my mother wears hearing aids, is very public about it, um, does she's sort of the super crip overcoming narrative. She'll do anything. She's so exceptional, you know, she'll she'll do anything um, to be integrated. So does that also apply to mental conditions, for example, something like depression? I think absolutely. And I think they're wonderful people like Mimi Cook, uh, Margaret Price doing uh, terrific work on mental disability and sort of the ableism around it um, and how it intersects with racism and, and sexism and all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. I think so. I think once we start claiming these as disabilities, right, it takes away and, and you know, part of it is a scientific change in our understanding, right? We now understand that depression has biological causes and markers, right? Um, I'm just using depression as an example that, you know, there's social factors, they're disabling conditions, but two people will react very differently to the same social context because of their, their um, biology, their neurology, etc. We didn't know this 20 years ago even, right? So I think part of it is catching up to that scientific knowledge of saying, yeah, this isn't like an individual problem to be solved and, and this isn't a shameful, you know, moral failure, right? This is, you know, if I had broke my leg or if I uh, couldn't walk, nobody would say, gee, you really just aren't trying hard enough or you just have a bad attitude, right? Um, but with mental disability, so often it's thought of as, you know, a moral failure, you're a weak person, you're self-indulgent, all these things. Um, an interesting one is addiction, which according to the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is a very conservative and restrictive definition of disability actually, but the ADA understands addiction as a disability. It has clear biological causes and markers, right? Um, that is not our social understanding, right? Um, we do not understand it as a disability. We send people to these 12-step programs. And it's like, you don't love Jesus enough, or you don't have, you know, there, there are all these narratives about what causes addiction, even though there are clear biological markers and causes. Again, so um, I think our social understanding of disability is behind the science in some ways. And then the science has shaped some very ableist narratives as well. Um, does uh, something like victim blaming also feed into uh, this uh, kind of um, thinking about disability, that the person who might have a depression, for example, it's somehow the flaw in their character? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the genetics narrative is part of that. The eugenics narrative inherited from our friends, the Nazis. Um, uh, yes, definitely. Um, there's still this, you know, especially in the U.S. where we have this sort of up by your bootstraps culture, you know, there's this idea that, um, disability has a clear cause, right? And it's abnormal and is somebody's fault. Hmm. You know, if you're Freudian, it's the mother's fault. If you're, you know, um, a eugenicist, it's, it's uh, bad genes, right? This whole narrative. Um, something that's interesting is a very, very small percentage of disabilities, it's like between 0.5 and 1.3%, I believe, um, are actually found at birth. Most disabilities are acquired by uh, the age of 65, 60% uh, of people have disabilities, mm -hmm. right? So most disabilities are acquired yet we're obsessed with genetic testing, right? Um, even many disabilities that appear at birth are from mutations that happen 
they're not from uh, a set replication of genes, right? So what, so that says something about us as a culture, right? <laughs> that we're obsessed with, you know, get the genes right, get rid of those bad genes, um, this kind of blamey victimy culture, um, rather than accepting disability as an ordinary part of life that affects everybody. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, the roles of genetic testing. And you said that you're a daughter of geneticist. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, and I did write a chapter about uh, genetics. Um, this is sort of the junk science of genetic testing, as I call it. Um, so I am not, there are many disability studies and disability justice people who are opposed to genetic testing, actually. I am not one of them. I'm not against any tool of science. Ever. Um, what I'm against is how we conceptualize and use those tools, right? Um, and I think Down syndrome is a great, which, you know, is something that has a clear genetic marker. You have an extra chromosome. There's no debate over that. We can test for it. Um, and it's gotten wrapped around the abortion debate in the U.S. and, and, and Western Europe and kind of depressing ways. Um, and here's the interesting thing. So, so we know exactly how it works, right? Um, and here's the interesting thing though about people with Down syndrome. From the 50s to the 1980s, there was mass institution, sorry, mass institutionalization of people with Down syndrome. Many people like my cousin XY the, were separated from their families at birth, lived in institutions and died very young, usually in their twenties and thirties. I think the average age was something like 29 and very low functioning by most you know, markers, et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of fueled the, um, impetus for genetic testing and, and a, you know, prenatal abortion, essentially. So here's the interesting thing. There has not been a single medication or change in treatment for Down syndrome. However, the life expectancy of your average person with Down syndrome is now in the 60s. Why? Because they were relineated. No longer are people born with Down syndrome separated from families and institutionalized. Okay, that's no longer the norm. So that social change led to a biological change in lifespan and it is now the norm for Down syndrome, people with Down syndrome to be educated. Many go to college and live full lives. So without any treatment or cure, right, the mm. outcome has changed radically. And I think that's where the social and the biological really need to be thought together. Um, I'm very pro-choice. I don't want to tell any woman what she should do with her pregnancy. I ad would advocate for her for any individual woman to have the choice to end a pregnancy for any reason, including reasons I don't agree with, right? Um, so I am not in any way suggesting that, you know, women should not be able to abort. However, I think the context and understanding of what it means to have a child with Down syndrome and what it means to parent a child and adult with Down syndrome, um, really needs to be changed and challenged. That's what I wanna change and challenge. And I do believe we'd use these tools differently and we'd actually develop different tools uh, in terms of genetics and, and testing. Uh, if we included people with disabilities at the center of those conversations, including scientists with disabilities, and if we you know, confronted our own ableism in all of this. Yeah, this is a very uh, powerful example, really, that um, in the history, we tended to really shun away from people with conditions we did not understand or we thought as disabilities, rather yes. than bringing them into the community. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's about fears of our own mortality, our own, we, it's some part of us knows that that could be us. And, and you know, we project and deny instead of integrate. Um, and I'm no better than anyone else. I, I have the same thing. An interesting um, coda to the Down syndrome conversation. So um, th there's new people with Down syndrome, 
are, have a higher incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's. And there's now some new drugs you might know about uh, that are being tested for Alzheimer's and dementia. And they're not being, they're not including people with Down syndrome in the test. And to me, that's just crazy. It's so ridiculously ableist. Here you have this test pop. You could learn so much from um, testing these drugs on this population, right? But um, their lives are just not valued equally. That's what it comes down to. So can we just talk a few about factors that could contribute to this stigmatization, stigmatizing of disability in our communities? Yes. So what is ableism? So we all heard this term, but what exactly does it mean? Right, right. Um, the, The simplest definition is the one that I like, and it is that we value some bodies and some kinds of bodies and minds over others. We decide some bodies are more valuable than other bodies, right? Um, And some kinds of minds are more valuable than other minds. That that's in a nutshell what it is, just like we've decided, you know, whiteness is more valuable than blackness, um, right? And we're trying to undo that as a society, but it's, it's deeply ingrained and it's in the structures as well as in individuals. Um, that's ableism in a nutshell. Um, I think there are, you know, other definitions and ways of thinking about it. But for me, that's that's the most useful definition is we value some bodies and some minds more than others. And who decides? <laughs> that is, there's the rub, right? Um, well, part of you know what my research kind of found so shocking and depressing is that um, our society is really more ableist now than it used to be. People with disabilities were more integrated in many ways into society before the Second World War in the US. And uh, Hitler drew on racist theories that had been used uh, in the US to perpetuate slavery, to develop his racist eugenics theories. And then, you know, I say we won the war, but we lost the moral battle in that after World War II, these very eugenicist ideas infiltrated science, infiltrated social science, infiltrated public policy in deep and profound ways and created a much more ableist society. My grandfather uh, was um, kind of interesting guy, not a very nice guy actually, but very smart, kind of self-made man, a doctor, and he he loved the war. He was in the war for like seven years in World War II as a doctor. And um, he comes back and he actually knew Rona. He knew my cousin in Scotland who had Down syndrome. And he, when his son has a child with Down syndrome, he basically uses, you know, Nazi logic and says, oh, this is not a human being. You have a right to a real child. Um, and that's a really shocking thing. It was very common. Um, but to think of someone who'd fought the Nazis saying this is really shocking. So a lot of it comes from a kind of technocratic post-war mentality that sorts, that's aimed at work and production, who's a good worker and who's not, right? Um, defines body minds that way and really has very fascist ideals. The Nazis tested, the test run for Auschwitz is the T4 program where German families, uh, Gentile German families brought their disabled children and, and family members to these centers, these killing centers in hospitals in Germany in the early stages of Nazism to be killed. Mm. And that's where they developed the gas and the showers. Um, So there's a mass genocide first of disabled people. That is very important. And that's not my scholarship. Um, That's other folks have done that scholarship about the T4 program. Um, So we really can't think about fascism without thinking about ableism. We can't think about ableism without thinking about fascism. It is a fascist discourse. And what role can sexism play in this? 
Oh, huge. <laughs> Especially when we think about care. Mm. That's what I found. And again, this wasn't something I thought I was going to focus on in this book. It's, you know, you think you're going to write about one thing and it takes you to something else entirely. But what I I started thinking about, what is the fear that parents have about having a disabled child, right? Um, And the real fear is about care. And we're so dishonest. And I'm talking about the U.S. It's a little better some places, but we're so dishonest about how gendered care work is and how raced it is. Um, For white women who are middle-class or higher, to have a disabled child is to be deprofessionalized. The whole society assumes you are gonna be the primary caretaker, you will sacrifice your career, et cetera, et cetera. Um, For women of color, working class women, it often leads to real poverty because we don't have the social supports and systems for care. And women are the caregivers. The percentages are just shocking, over 80%, um, whether it's elder care or care for a disabled family member. Um, And there's a system inherited from the carceral slavery, which... Uh, care work was viewed as not work that Black women did. That That's sort of the origin of this idea that it's not really work. Oh. And now there's sort of a global economy uh, in the U.S. where the way to get to the U.S. for a lot of women in the developing world is to be a care worker under incredibly poor conditions. Um, So the racism and sexism is just profound. I also thought on a more micro level about things like, you know, as long as it's healthy is sort of this um, mantra that pregnant women (laughs) repeat. And I, me, dear Lord, I was a sinner too. I, I said it all the time when I was pregnant. As an answer to the question, do you want a boy or a girl? You're not supposed to have a gender preference. That would be sexist. You're supposed to say, I don't care as long as it's healthy. And, you know, like what's wrong with saying that? And why does everyone say that? Well, first of all, you don't really, gender is a huge force in the world. You, why are we not allowed to say what we think about that? And it really, an anxiety about gender has been shifted onto uh, ability and disability. Um, as long as it's healthy. Well, what is health? Are you going to toss it back if it's not healthy? All, all infants are unhealthy. I don't know if you're a parent, but they're, they're sick constantly. So, so none of them are healthy by any marker. Um, and a disability isn't really health necessarily. It's an illness or disease, right? Um, it, it's a condition and identity. And I thought, I didn't say this earlier, but I want to talk about disability as a, a positive identity, as well as uh, a condition of impairment. So I think we were very dishonest about our fears about care and care work, because we would have to face the unbelievable um, sexism of how that's structured. And this happens in the macro ways I'm talking about it. It, when I went to support groups for parents of children, parents of children with disabilities, there would be not a single male, not a single dad, all women, but we're going to call it parents and sort of paper over that really the people doing this care work are women to a one. Yeah, the question of care is so important and the pandemic probably brought it uh, to, into the light um, to, you know, you can see, especially when people are staying home, who is taking care of, care of children and yeah. how difficult it can be, especially when taking care of children with uh, some kind of disabilities. So do you think it sort of had lasting effect? Did it lead to any changes in uh, how we think about it? I think it brought the problem into the light is what I think. I don't think we've made those structural changes mm. really. Um, I think with the more flexible work stuff, using Zoom, um, whether those will be permanent, I don't know. And I think we still haven't had a truly honest conversation um, in which we imagine care as a normal part of life. We imagine disability as a normal part of life. And we imagine that all of us are obligated to care. 
Um, it's been interesting seeing my generation of queers age and have aging parents and find them like completely shocked and appalled that, you know, these people need care or more, even, even more poignantly that they themselves uh, need care. We're still in this misogynistic, you know, phallocentric patriarchal culture where, you know, not needing help, not needing care, being, you know, an army of one, all that stuff um, is still sort of celebrated and interdependence and the need for care is, is undervalued and invalidated. So I think we really need to suffer a sea change. I think COVID exposed it, I think, um, in all its gendered class and race kind of contours. Um, and we can't unsee that. So my hope is that we can take this moment and make it a moment for transformation. So there are quite a few issues for us to address. Uh, yes. Um, let's maybe start with what do we need to do in order to change minds and perception of disability in a wider society? Yeah, well, you know, there's nothing like being out. <laughs> That's something I know about being queer. Um, if you're not out about your family's disability, I was very out about my daughter's disability from day one. Um, I needed an accommodation at my job that involved me telling everybody. So kind of before I was ready to have that conversation with everybody, everybody knew I'm, I'm the person with the disabled kid. Out of the woodwork they came, all my colleagues, told me and nobody else that they had a disabled child, parent, etc. It's all our families, right? So the most important thing you can do is just start the conversation and, you know, talk about your or your child's or your parents or whoever's disability openly in a non-stigmatized way, demand accommodation, value that person and talk about disability joy disability gain, all the things that are, are unique and exciting about that person, not in spite of their disability, but wrapped around it. Um, and I'm not against medical treatment. I don't think pain is good or anything. I think disability is inevitable and has positive aspects to it, actually, in terms of human, the complexity and nuance of human experience. So I think that's always the first thing is just to be out. Um, and I do think imagining that it's not unprecedented, that you have disability lineage um, really changes that, you know, that, that there's so two directions. Reaching back helps us imagine the future differently, imagine the legacy we're going to leave. Um, I, I talk about how Rona becomes kind of an archetype for my daughter and I, you know, that by, my daughter knows about her disability heritage, sees herself in it. That's crucial. So think about that legacy as well. Um, and I think, you know, in all these conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, including body mind diversity, including disability, and including what's specific and different about disability from race or gender. And of course, they intersect. So then thinking about disability as a disability within a context. So what kind of accommodations or even structures within our society can we think about in order to accommodate as many people as we can with different, different abilities? Yeah, I guess um, there's a lot of movement now to move beyond accommodation to thinking about what makes something accessible for a particular person, right? And instead of trying to anticipate every possible body-mind using principles that are sometimes called universal design, which really value flexibility, making building, you know, it started as sort of an architectural concept, but actually we're using it in terms of instructional design now. <laughs> so instead of, um, trying to sort of build the perfect building that's accessible to everybody, um, making it flexible, assuming you won't be able to do that and you'll be able to change it and then listening to everybody and, and really just saying, you know, all bodies and all minds need to have access at all times. What would the world look like? It would look different. Um, so I think that's how I start from the idea that everybody 
should be included in everything. And I mean, an opera performance, what would opera look like if, you know, people who were loud and stimming were in the audience? You know, what would skating look like instead of sort of a segregationist approach? Like we're gonna have the special Olympics over here and like the real Olympics over here. No, you know, what does it mean to truly integrate society? What does it mean to make things accessible in a way that's not predictive, that's flexible and open, and to really center disabled people in these conversations. Um, and to see this as like, there's not like this set answer, but that it's an open, flexible process. Um, I guess that's where I am in this at this point. I think the sea change for me is, um, really seeing the wisdom of people with disabilities that, you know, the, the saying, the talk of disability gain, disability joy, like for a couple of years, you know, I mouthed the words, but I didn't really feel that. Um, and I do now, I think there, there's a richness and depth of experience in disability culture and thinking of disability as a culture as well. Um, and then just knowledge and wisdom that can help us all, sometimes called curb cut gain, which is, you know, the curbs in the US at least all have a cut in them so that wheelchair users can use the, the streets. If you have a child and you've ever had a baby buggy, right? you need that. So it's been a benefit to everybody in society to have that. Um, and that's a very concrete material example, but I'll give you an example. So I had a, a stress fracture on my foot. I, I danced too hard this year. I love to dance and I'm 55. And so that led to a stress fracture in my foot and I had a boot. I had, you know, all this stuff and, and it wasn't fun. And all the people who are not disabled, all they wanted was like the story of how it happened and the prognosis. Um, and they wanted to hear that it would be over soon. They found it upsetting to see me in a boot limping, right? So I felt like it was very tiring to talk to people who were not disabled about this temporary disability and kind of depressing. I always felt worse after talking to them. Oh, what happened? Well, you'll be better soon, right? Da, 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 da. Oh, I knew some. It, was, it gave me nothing and took mm -hmm. something away from me. I would talk to people with disabilities and, you know, First of all, anyone who had a related condition had information for me beyond what a doctor would tell, you know, like kind of folk wisdom about it. Like, oh, use this kind of, they tell you to use this compress, but this one's actually better. And, and you know, oh, you know, there's an entrance in this building on the other side that's a lot easier for you to use. So there was all this wisdom from people with similar disabilities. Um, and kind of joy and, and joking and uh, kind of a relaxed engagement that really fed me. And I always felt, A, I had learned something that was really useful to me. They had knowledge that I needed. And B, there was just kind of like an intimacy and understanding and fun. I, I didn't feel kind of like I'd become the scary object um, that I felt whenever I talked to uh, non-disabled people. So I think that's kind of the subtle thing about disability culture, right? And we will all at least be temporarily disabled, right? But I, and it, this, this isn't a, you know, a substitute for medical information. I wasn't going to these disabled people for like, what kind of medical treatment I should get for this. But I always say, you know, doctors go to for the medicine. That's what they're experts on. There's this whole other side of a disability that has nothing to do with the medical piece. And doctors are actually quite useless for that, I find. And other disabled, disabled culture and community is much richer and much more helpful for that. Oh, that's for sure. It's, it's such a great example. And quite often you just feel that uh, in general, the ableist approach is to be quite pitying towards us yes. uh, when, when yes. you talk. Mm. Yeah, and I really felt that kind of objectification, you know, um, or I'd say, well, at least you're, other, the, you know, people just said all these weird things to me and then wanted me to recount the story of how it happened. Da, 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 da. Um, and it sort of bothered people that there wasn't a cataclysmic event that I hadn't fallen or something. I said, no, it's from over, you know, I'm middle-aged and I dance 
and it's a stress fracture and it literally means you overstressed the bone. So it has a little fracture. Um, and it was just very tiresome and tiring to talk to people who are not disabled about it. And I felt their fear. I mm-hmm. felt how I was a mirror of their fears, you know, and I've been that person too. I'm not any better than anybody. I just uh, noticed that when I talked to other disabled people, they had practical suggestions that were helpful and just the mood and tone really helped me rather than kind of sapped me. So that, that was just like a really small, subtle example of disability gain. Of, of, and, and I do feel like it changed my thinking about uh, my own campus and its accessibility, having that experience as well. And what about at the highest level of our governments, institutions? So what uh, those players can do to really sort of get to the heart of, especially the care, you know, for disability, <laughs> um, disabled persons, but um, also for the medical care and uh, integration into society. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a public policy person. I don't have all the answers and there are lots of people working on this. Um, But I think, you know, if we assumed everybody would eventually be disabled or be a caretaker, we'd make different choices policy-wise. We'd spend our money differently. Many of these problems really could be solved um, with, you know, uh, public support for care. That, that's just sort of a no-brainer. We haven't been of a mind to do it. We're the richest country in the world in the U.S. The other piece is the Americans with Disabilities Act is a wonderful piece of legislation. It has no enforcement mechanism. If I go to a restaurant and it's not accessible to me, my only recourse is to sue. That's a terrible system. It makes disabled people seem like these litig- you know, these mean litigious people. Um, we need enforcement mechanisms. There's zero enforcement of the, of the ADA. Another yucky thing is for K through 12 education, there's a whole set of, in the this is US specific, whole set of legislation uh, that's very nuanced and complex about uh, access to education. Um, when you hit college, because the assumption of that legislation was that disabled people wouldn't go to college. So there's nothing besides the ADA for college and above. Mm-hmm. That's your only recourse. And that's a, a very broad rule, you know, piece of legislation that's not oriented towards education. So I, I do think very concretely we need uh, legislation like mirroring what we have through for K through 12 for college. Um, and I deal with this all the time as a university professor. So that's something very concrete that I actually know something about. There are myriad policy and um, legal aspects of this, but I think, you know, we have to, uh, there's a rotten core <laughs> of ableism in how we think about this that, that shades all the legislation and policy. Um, you know, and I think Biden is obviously you know, compared to Trump, who made fun of disabled people and was like horrible in every possible way. You know, Biden's an interesting figure because he has a disability, but he, you know, is from the generation where it's all about overcoming. It's all the overcoming narrative. Um, And I think he's who he is. Many of his positive leadership qualities, I think, come from his disability. And I wish he'd talk about that and not just the overcoming, because I think public discourse and role models do matter. So where do you, do you see us going forward from here? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's an interesting moment. In some ways, disabled people have been the most negatively impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. But in other ways, it's surfaced a lot of access issues um, to the general public that were sort of not on, on people's radar. So it is an interesting and transformative moment. Um, I, I think we, we really need to confront on sort of a psychological level our own ableism before we can in the public sphere change much. And that's what my book is about, really. Mm. And thinking about the bigger picture. So what do you think will it take for us to completely transform the way we think about disability? Is it like generational change or something else? 
Well, you know, I've been very hurt. I think there is some generational change, but I think it's happening. Mm. It's been very heartening for me um, as the daughter of a geneticist and a, a very well, highly regarded scientist. I sort of grew up in the culture of science, right? I, that doesn't understand itself to be a culture, right? Um, and a very 20th century, you know, male, white, uh, elite culture. Um, and it's been really interesting to see the scientific American has been running pieces by people like Rosemary Garland Thompson, one of the founders of Disability Studies, who says, you need to think about me, she's disabled, uh, when you think about when you design genetic testing, right? So I, I can't, like 10 years ago, I can't even imagine that happening. Five years ago, maybe not. So I do think that the conversation is changing um, and who is centered in it. I think Crip Camp being nominated for an Oscar and losing to that stupid octopus movie. Um, but uh, that's huge, huge, huge. So I think people uh, beginning to get past their fear, stigma and shame and seeing disability as part of human diversity, I think the 2020 racial reckoning and its aftermath, the focus at every institution practically on diversity, equity, and inclusion um, has, you know, shined a light on these issues. So I, I do like that centered now in a way it wasn't even three years ago. So I think it is changing. Um, but I, I think we still have this trauma model of disability that, you know, people acted like my daughter died when I told them that she'd been diagnosed with this disability. Um, or they'd say, oh, but she's so sweet. She can't, you know, she smiles so much. She can't be autistic, you know? <laughs> um, so I think it's changing. You know, progress is always not as fast as we'd like. Um, but I think it has to be both these big public changes and, you know, inside our own hearts, our own families, we rethink what disability is and what meaning we make of it. So then are you cautious optimist? Yeah, I am. You know, I can't, something about having a kid, you can't really afford to be a cynic, I think, when you're mm -hmm. a parent. Um, that's just definitionally crappy parenting. So I, I think I am, you know, and I see my daughter has been raised to think of her disability as part of her identity, not all of it. She's many other things too that can't all be separated. You know, that's one of the things I hate is when people find out I have an autistic kid that's, uh, they collapse everything about her to her autism, right? Um, but I think she's really been raised to be empowered, to think of herself as, of course, I, I have, should have access, of course, you know, I'm equal to anyone. Um, so, so I do see a generational shift and she's been raised to think of it as an identity, not a problem to be solved. And she's been raised, and this is so important. They never tell parents when you get a diagnosis like autism to find your people, to find community for yourself find a, and your kid. That is the single most important thing you can do. You know, not a single therapist, you know, ABA person, speech therapist. Oh, we went to the mall. Nobody said what you really need to do is have community with other families, have community for your daughter. It has made such a huge difference. So I, I think that is huge. And that's beginning to be more normalized. And what discoveries in your research and during your journey of writing your book, All Our Families, surprised you the most? Oh, so many things surprised me. I mean, the first shocker was that there was a whole other cousin, Rona, who mm. existed in my family, who my grandfather knew, um, who nobody in my U.S. family knew about. I asked, I've asked them um, that there was this whole other cousin with Down syndrome who had this really positive trajectory, um, who was only a little younger than cousin XY. So that was just an absolute, you know, uh, one of the most shocking discoveries of my lifetime. It, it kind of changed everything. Um, I guess the other thing that I would say is how connected our sense of 
legacy kinship inheritance is to you know the, the connection between what we're going to change and you know what you've just been talking about in terms of changing society and our inheritance in our family um, those things are intimately linked in ways that I hadn't really conceptualized um, that how we conceptualize our disability lineage how we own it name it claim it has everything to do with the future of kinship has everything to do with the future of disability um, so I think those two things both that very personal concrete Rona uh, moment and uh, just seeing how connected if we want a different future, we have to claim the past. Um, do you have your favorite artists that uh, are people with disabilities or some uh, figures that really inspire you? Definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm not gonna offend anyone and just name one. So there's so many artists. I teach a class called Disability in the Arts and um, Judith Scott is an amazing, just, genius artist who had Down syndrome, she's passed away, who was institutionalized. They took away crayons from her when she tried to draw. Cause they're like, you can't draw, you have Down syndrome. Um, she could not speak, right? Um, but she made some of the most interesting art of the past hundred years just as art. Um, and because somebody saw this in her and her sister rescued her from that fucking institution and uh, she flowered into this major, major artist. So I always think about her a lot and I just love the work so much mm. as well. Um, the performance group Sins Invalid is amazing. And um, the dancer Jerron Herman, who we just had in residence at Georgetown, is an amazing dancer who uh, the piece he just created called Vitruvian is about uh, Michelangelo's idea of the Vitruvian man, the ideal man, you know, that we've seen this image of our whole lives. And he as a black, queer, disabled person and physically disabled uh, plays with that notion of the ideal in such a profound way. He's amazing. Um, Claire Cunningham is another amazing, brilliant, funny, funny as hell uh, disabled artist. And I have to say um, my own daughter, <laughs> Nadia Sonnenbank, is a poet whose work is just so extraordinary and so exciting to me. Um, so there's so many... Uh, artists, uh, Riva Lehrer, amazing, amazing artists, so many artists who uh, engage disability in their work in such complex, witty, subtle, brilliant ways. Um, exactly, and we should not be missing out on this due to our own prejudices. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, um, there's sort of the idea that it's like nice, to include disabled people. But I mean, this work is just extraordinary work by any standard, you know? Um, and it is, you can't separate the disability from the work as with any dimension of our identity. Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So what are you working on now and what will be your next project? Oh, thank you so much, Galena. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, so I'm, interested in, uh, this is in the early stages, so there might be some uhs and ahs here as I describe it, but basically 20th century psychology had factually incorrect, scientifically provably wrong uh, ideas about autism and neurodiverse people at the core of its theories, right? So whether it's Canner and the refrigerator mom, right? Uh, all the theories about the psychology of autistic and neurodiverse people were based on things that now, no, you know, scientists would laugh at, right? Not only are they horribly ableist, they're just factually incorrect, right? Uh, but what's happened is there's really a void there in theorizing how do neurodiverse people um, make sense of things like attachment? We see that it's different from 
uh, typically developing people. But I think people are very afraid to use the old stuff, which we know is factually wrong and horribly ableist. So there's sort of a void of theorizing psychology of neurodiversity. Um, and the treatment then, you know, uh, I have so many friends who are neurodiverse who go to therapists and like the questions are all wrong for them. They're all based on uh, a typically developing brain, right? Not an autistic brain. So there's sort of like, so autistic people kind of, oh, therapy's not for me. It's, 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 it's all centered around uh, non-autistic ways of thinking. And, and deaf people sometimes say the same thing. Um, so uh I've gotten interested in, and I'm actually going to do a two-year training program, in going back to the core concepts of psychoanalysis of Melanie Klein, not just Freud Klein, and you know, and there's some new ones too about, you know, how do we make meaning in the world? How do we develop? How do we attach? Uh, neurodiverse people tend to be much less binary in their gender identities. Nobody knows why. There seems to be some biological component of that, right? It's so interesting to me, um, but because of the sort of violent ableism of the previous theories, nobody wants to theorize it. And the only treatments are really behaviorist and kind of terrible. So in, in terms of psychology and then just traditional sort of ego psychology, but how does ego psychology work if you're a neurodiverse person and, and your whole sense of self is constituted differently, you sort of self other relations. So that's, I think my next project, and I'm actually getting some training in this so that I can write it. Um, I'm, I'm going to be doing a, a two-year program in, in psychoanalysis here in DC. Uh, that's really my question. And you know, I always start somewhere, but it leads me somewhere else. So who knows where this one will lead me? But that was sort of like, gee, everybody from the neuroscience people to, you know, the psychologists say the 20th century ideas about uh, autism are complete bunk and useless for treatment. But okay, well, why don't we find out how these differences work psychologically? And even assuming that neurodiverse people will have complex psychologies, I think is a leap for a lot of people. But because of my lived experience, I know that to be true. They're just structured a little differently. So that's, I think, what I want to work on next. That's super exciting and really important work. I hope you come and talk to us once it's done. Oh, I would love to. (laughs) So what's the best way to find more information about your work and also your book? Yes, well, my book is available everywhere really from Amazon or uh, Penguin Random House or Beacon Press uh, or any bookstore, any bookseller. (coughs) Very easy to find all our families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship. It's on Kindle. There's an audio book and I'm very proud of the book design. The cover, which is beautiful, was designed by an autistic person and the audio book is read by someone who is much younger than me, I think, who is also disabled. So that I'm very proud of that. So uh, if you like, uh, prefer audiobook for accessibility or other reasons, um, you can find me on Instagram. I, I can't quite stomach Twitter, but I do Insta and I'm Jennifer Natalia Yup. That's my handle. And uh, I also have a website um, and it's easy to find me. Um, just I'm my full name. I use Jennifer Natalia Fink. Um, and I'm always excited to hear from people about the book. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Galena. I really enjoyed talking with you.